Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Claudio Reyna, the Austin FC sporting director and former U.S. men's national team star. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the news in the soccer world. We'll have Claudia Reyna in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. I mean, I'm not I'm not quite in Venice, enjoying a nice time in <laughs> Italy, but you know, we're getting on. You are in South Florida, which is pretty nice. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. It was like 77 and sunny to play soccer this morning, so fair enough. Exactly. Um, though I have no complaints. Uh had a really nice four-day stay here in Venice, first time here, and went to the Venezia. Genoa game today and took a boat to the stadium, which was uh, really interesting. And I'll be writing a lot more about that very soon here. But um, I love getting out in the world of soccer. And Venezia is one of the more fascinating stories, I think, in world soccer. And it's got a big American connection as well. I hope they end up staying up in Syria. Ah, they are one point above the relegation zone as it is. So the final 13 games are going to be really interesting. Uh, one of the guys on my boat today was Gianluca Buzio. Really nice guy. I actually hadn't had much uh, one-on-one time with him until this week, but uh, really enjoyed meeting him. Yeah, I saw I saw he was interviewed by uh, The Call-Up with uh, Susanna Collins and Jillian Sakovitz, and I just saw a clip of his, like, he seems like a very nice man. And it, it was just, it was weird for that, like, to just, like, pulsate from just, like, a screenshot <laughs> of an interview, never mind, like, a one-minute clip. He seems very nice. He is. He is. He's just 19. It's kind of crazy, but... Uh, Huge recommendation for the call-up, by the way. I think they do a great job with that podcast, and you should check that out from MLS. But um, but yeah, just uh, Tanner Testman I spent some time with as well here. He played in the game today. Buzio didn't because he was suspended on yellows, so he was actually on our boat. That's why he was with us heading to the game. But lots to talk about other than Venezia in the world this weekend. And let's start with the Premier League. We've got a race, and and once again, I have a little bit of egg on my face for having declared that race over, and it may be, but at this point, Liverpool closing ground again this weekend on Man City. Man City losing at home to Spurs, which ends its three-game league losing streak by winning at City, and Liverpool coming from behind against Norwich at home ends up getting three points from that game, even though Josh Sargent did get an assist on that first goal for I mean, Norwich. An, but- a, a nominal assist. It was an absolute wonder goal from Rashidza of, of Norwich, and it took a wicked deflection as well. But look, man, you get on the score sheet, you get those FPL points. Good enough for me. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, But I Liga, as they would say in Spain, uh, <laughs> for the Premier League race, there is a league at this point. And... What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think you have to start first, and, and we'll get to the Man City, Man City Spurs game because it was a tremendous game of football. But you have to start with the fact that Liverpool have taken advantage of this period where a lot of people thought that if they didn't get to this point in the season, meaning the beginning of January before the Africa Cup of Nations, without 
a lead without being close that they wouldn't be able to stay in it because a lot of their best players are African. They'd go off and they'd have a fall off. And sure enough, they've won five in a row in the Premier League in this period, albeit against a group of five teams that are all in the bottom half of the Premier League. But you still have to go out and win the games. You know, Man City lost to Crystal Palace earlier this season at home. Liverpool beat them during this period. So uh, Liverpool have done a tremendous job here to come from behind. They've also very quietly gone about and acquired some more depth and bring in Luis Diaz. And all of a sudden, that front three is now a front five with uh, Diogo Jota's emergence and with the emergence now of Luis Diaz. So they're slowly but surely acquiring some depth. You saw them make seven changes in the game against Norwich. And yes, they did find themselves 1-0 behind. But after making seven changes, they were still in it. I'm not sure... Liverpool teams of the past could have done that, but they're deeper, they're stronger, and they've sustained throughout this period, and now they're right there. They're six points behind with a game in hand. They still have to play Manchester City later on in the season. I would start circling the date April the 9th now because that's when they play each other at the Etihad, and now you've got 12, 13 games left where we've got a title race in the Premier League. And I would not be surprised if it met the standard of a couple of years ago when City won on 98 and Liverpool won on 97, where they just trade three points for three points for three points for three points, because that's the standard that they're hitting right now. Well, you mentioned the game in hand that Liverpool has. So they've got a midweek game against, I think it's Leeds United. If they win that game... And I basically Liverpool controls their own destiny in the league now. So if they win that game and they win at the Etihad, Liverpool's in the lead. Now it might be by goal difference in that case, but that's something to keep in mind. And I think people might need to sort of reshape their view of what Liverpool is this season. This might be Klopp's best team at Liverpool. And I know they've had some very good teams that have won the Champions League, that have won the Premier League, that have gotten a bazillion points to finish a point behind City in the league. But this Liverpool team is awesome. And I think they've like they've dealt with some of their defensive questions that I had from earlier in the season. And I don't know what they spent. Was it 40 million on Luis Diaz? But like, that's a steal. How did they get away with that in January? That's insane. <laughs> well, He's awesome. Yes, I, and, and he scored a great goal in this game. But I think what Liverpool does is they kind of get their business done 6 to 12 months before people expect them to. So if they let Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino, or Mo Salah go in the summer, and then they went to go get a replacement, that might have cost them $60 million. But because they do it before and they recognize this player fits our system, he fits our profile. And it's funny because like, I, I, I know some Liverpool fans, and they weren't completely enthusiastic about this Luis Diaz signing, but... They know. They're idiots then. They're idiots. <laughs> uh, but they know Liverpool do exactly what they need from an attacking player. Like, when you don't, you can't question them after what they did with Jota. You can't question, them, obviously, what they did in building out that front three in the first place. But they know the profile of player that they want, and then they just go and get them before anyone expects that they have a need in that position. Their succession planning, what they've done with Klopp, has been absolutely incredible. No, it is. But, I mean, like, it makes me wonder, like, what's Porto thinking? selling him at that number because this is a player who we have seen actually not recently with Columbia because Columbia has been terrible recently (laughs) like with Columbia at the Copa America last year with with Porto and just consistently consistently and I I think he's awesome and I think he could become a major major star uh in the Premier League and that depends how 
you know, the personnel situation works at Liverpool and how much of a marquee player he's going to be. But he has the capability of being that. To see him score his first goal was great. Not surprising at all. And you look at City, and when I see Liverpool is going to play City at City, that actually, for an interesting reason, doesn't really seem like an issue. Like, I, I think City is very beatable at home. Like occasionally, and like where they play the games doesn't seem to matter that much. I just, I guess that comes down to the Etihad is not a fortress at all, and it certainly wasn't against Spurs. But what happened in this game? How was Spurs able to sort of like turn things around and and get this victory? Well, I, I have I've got a few points on this one. So my first would be that I thought Manchester City were really poor in defensive transition, particularly once right. Spurs received the ball and got towards the middle of the pitch. City kind of completely backed off, and they have like this habit of backing off in big moments. Like when they when they have a chance to go win the ball, it's like no, I'd rather back off and back off and back off, and that clearly has to be coached. But but you saw them in moments where they could have attacked Tottenham and they didn't, and they allowed them to string three or four passes together. And then the other aspect of it is every time that Spurs got into a threatening area, they had the composure, considering that they've been chasing Manchester City players in most of the game. They had something like 28% of the ball. But when they got into attacking moments, they took a breath, they stepped on the ball, and they made incredibly smart decisions. Dejan Kulisevsky was one of the leaders in that. Harry Kane obviously was tremendous. But between Kane, Son, and Kulisevsky, they just had the composure when they got into that final third. Rodrigo Betancourt had a good game as well. And all of a sudden, you have four and five players in the attacking half that when they got on the ball, they made good decisions. They had uh, you know, a fourth goal that was disallowed on VAR that Kulisevsky kind of just straight offside. I don't think that's necessarily like good defending by Man City or holding a line. It was just kind of Kulisevsky going astray. Otherwise, they could have hit for four with like 28% of the ball. They were just really good. when they, Once they got the ball, they had that presence of mind and the fitness to not be exhausted and do what a lot of teams do against Manchester City, which is kind of like, all right, we're going to punt it forward and then, you know, hope we can win a second ball. They actually made composed decisions against Manchester City with the ball, and not a lot of teams do that, and they deserve an enormous amount of credit for the way that they won the game. And Spurs somehow managed to win this game despite a classic Hugo Lloris howler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. They, they, they overcame the howler. <laughs> with some regularity, and yet they still end up winning the game. I, part of me wonders is like when we talk about Man City's defensive weaknesses at times, especially in transition under Pep Guardiola, that's been a fairly consistent thing over time. And I guess that's not entirely surprising with how high a line they play, how you know how much their their fullbacks get forward. That you're gonna have space behind all of that and it puts a lot of pressure on the center backs and the guys protecting the center backs but it almost makes you wonder like should Pep Guardiola have like a defensive coordinator like in the NFL or something <laughs> I mean it's not it's not a bad show I will say like during a lot of this run including when they hammered sporting in midweek in the Champions League they're very good pressing forward. But it's when they're not completely switched on with the press. It's when they're not constantly winning the ball back and harrying guys. And even when they do get the chance, when the opposition does get the chance with the ball, they're pressed into bad decisions. They didn't press Spurs into bad decisions.
into bad decisions, whether it's the quality of Spurs or whether it's Man City just having an off day with that intensity. But and, and, and to that point, in terms of transition, I actually think a lot of the problems there get solved by having both Kyle Walker and Joao Cancelo on the pitch because they have such extraordinary pace. There were a lot of moments that Kyle Walker was able to sprint back and stop even more counters from happening, but you need to have that there. In, and I kind of wonder, you know, Kyle Walker is, you know, he's 31, I think, 31, 32, and he's still one of the fastest players in the world. When that slows down, do they have kind of a ready-made replacement to go and be one of the fastest players in the world to slow down those counterattacks? But uh, either way, um, Man City just didn't have it on this day. And now you, you give them a break. They won 14 of their previous 15 Premier League matches. They hadn't lost since October the 30th. But um, whenever these results happen, it reminds you of how they can be beaten in either big Premier League matches or big Champions League matches. I'm going to push for Carlos Puyol for defensive coordinator. That's, that's my <laughs> new thing. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see him back back in the mix. Why if not? there can be a um, throw-in coach, there can be a defensive coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> oh shoot I do want to talk a little bit before we get to Italy and Syria uh, about the U.S. national teams a uh, couple of notes on the U.S. men's national team really disturbing scenes of Gio Reyna in tears coming off in his first start in over five months in the Bundesliga for Borussia Dortmund we don't have any like specific official information yet from the club, but it certainly looked like a muscular injury. Uh, and just judging by his reaction, you know, he's an emotional kid. So like, I, I don't want to jump to conclusions, but it it is really disheartening considering what he's been through over the last five months. Muscle injuries don't usually take this long to recover from. And uh, he's such a promising talent. And... You know, it, like to see that today just really hurt. Yeah, re-injury so soon after injury is just such a bummer. And when you look at the U.S. World Cup qualifying campaign, they have not had this incredible talent, like who you can argue was like on the level of Christian Pulisic, just based off their club trajectory. He is on the level of Christian Pulisic in terms of where he was at at his age. And so the fact that we haven't really been able to see him in this pivotal year, and now it kind of leaves you with questions of, is he going to be ready for the World Cup? How integrated into the squad is he going to be for the World Cup? But, you know, you're coming off of Tim Weah experiencing something similar. He rebounded well. And so you hope that there's, you know, not a long-term issue here. But re-injury so soon after injury is such a bummer. Uh, this is a much smaller example, but Inter-Miami had a really promising defender uh, who tore an ACL last year and then had a really good preseason and then tore that very same ACL. And, like, it's just such a bummer when guys who are on a good trajectory at a young age not only re-injure themselves, but then you start asking the question, is this going to be something that makes them a player that can't hit the ceiling that they would have prior to the injury? If the the, the, the kind of soft muscle thing becomes a problem, um, then, you know, you're, you're, you start to wonder, all right, is his hamstring or whatever muscle it is ever going to be the same? Yeah, and it's also a reminder, we have Claudio Reyna with a really good interview later in this podcast that we did before uh, Sunday's injury to Gio, and he talks at some length about Gio and, you know, with some excitement that he's returning, and, and just keep that in mind as, as everyone listens to that interview. Best of luck to, to Gio Reyna. Hope the recovery happens quickly. U.S. women's national team in action on Sunday. 5-0, more like we're used to seeing against New Zealand. Three own goals in the first half. Oh, I like, felt I don't so have bad the... for poor Michaela Moore. Oh, 
<laughs> I don't have the history of this in front of me. Maybe fbref.com does. How often have there been three own goals by one team and a half? Or even the same game, for that matter. Yeah, I, I'm for, for whatever reason, before this happened today, I, I, I think I saw a headline recently about a hat trick of own goals, but there cannot be a more miserable way to... <laughs> to 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 concede goals and not only a hat trick of own goals but a hat trick of own goals you know in in the first half in quick succession uh and it just you feel so terrible for Michaela Moore but i mean look the the US packed on pressure actually two of them were 1 minute apart in the 5th and the 6th minute uh in in the first half but you feel terrible for her but look the US packed on pressure as you said a much better performance than against the Czech Republic in midweek and now you're you're feeling a little bit better especially when you see some of the players that were getting in on the act Ashley Hatch was really good in the second half of this one Mallory Pugh as well uh working off a header from Hatch and, and and finishing with the plum, so uh, you can you can give the U.S. credit for how they packed on pressure. But yeah, I mean that the hat trick of the of own goals is is probably the story here. Unfortunately for Michaela Moore, yeah, absolutely wild. And I do hope for New Zealand's sake that they get better before they host the or co-host the World Cup next year because they seem to have regressed. And that's not mm-hmm. just from this game against the U.S. It's because they lost to Iceland as well. And this is a team that has played in World Cups and Olympics before, but didn't provide much resistance. And I think this U.S. team was really motivated after the nil-nil against the Czechs. And, and granted, the Czechs have now tied in World Cup qualifying the Netherlands twice. So they're not a pushover, but they're certainly not a team that you typically expect to be competing with the best teams in the world. And in fact, in World Cup qualifying, they're in third in their group behind the Dutch and, and Iceland. So... Um, you know, just a, an interesting result, but that was a little concerning for the U.S. when you're at home like that with a a younger lineup, uh, you know, with some of the top stars out, and you know, comments from Vladko Andonovsky that we're not totally used to seeing, basically saying like this isn't acceptable. So uh, interesting times right now for the U.S. women's national team, and they do finish up this tournament against Iceland. She believes Cup is not as good a tournament as it used to be. That's a bit of a bummer. You don't have like the Englands and the Frances coming. England is hosting its own really good tournament right now that includes, uh, what is it? Canada, Germany, and Spain. So that's like the real, the, like, the really high quality tournament happening right now. But um, France has its own tournament as well. But uh, so we'll see if there's going to be more She Believes Cups in the future or not. But uh, one more game in that for the U.S. Let's talk Syria a little bit. Interesting weekend. I'm here in the middle of it, but I got to say, Venice is not... Venice is a world-class tourist city, okay? And nobody's disagreeing with that. It's not necessarily a world-class soccer city. So, like, as I was walking on my way to at least to get my boat today to the stadium, going through some of the more heavily tourist-populated areas of Venice, most of those people didn't appear to know there was a Syria A game taking place in town today. Um, <laughs> they, then you get to a certain part of the city, and then you start seeing fans and scarves and stuff like that. But um, that part I found interesting. Uh, but elsewhere in Italy, obviously, big weekend, and uh, Inter, league leader, Loses on Sunday 2-0 at home to Sassuolo, which is just a, a wild result. Inter's going through a rough stretch right now. 
But Milan ties with last place Salernitana, so they're not taking full advantage of it. And that means that Napoli on Monday can go top of the league if they beat Cagliari, which is in the relegation battle with teams like Venezia. So it's a really fun race right now. Yeah, and the fact that you know, in some ways, we talked earlier about what the Premier League title race could be with two teams just hitting an incredibly high standard. The, the classic title race does feature teams that drop points. And so I think in, in every respect, you're, you're seeing a title race this year in Italy that, you know, it, it's it's exactly the kind of drama that we want. Any weekend, one of the big teams can lose. Any one of the three teams at the top right now can hit the heights and get there. Juve have certainly had their chance to get back in. If you think of the four drop points that they've had um, in in the Turin Derby on Friday night and then away at Atalanta last weekend. I mean, if you if you if you count four more points, they're all of a sudden right there with Napoli, with Inter, and with Milan. But you look right now at the top five. Um, they, if, you know, if you exclude Napoli, who hasn't played yet this weekend, none of those teams have won this weekend. And so you're going to see drop points all over the place. Inter have definitely let themselves down by not beating Sassuolo at home, by not winning any of their last three Serie A matches, including the Derby against Milan. If you go back to halftime of that game against Milan when they are cruising at 1-0 up and probably should have been more, um, they've had a rough go of it. They beat Roma in the cup, but uh, then they drew away at Napoli. They lost in the Champions League to Liverpool and now lost at home to Sassuolo. They're going through a swoon right now, and if they're going to win this title, uh, they have to get back into good form, especially uh, next Friday when they take on Genoa. That has to be three points, and uh, they have to be right back into it. Watching Genoa today in in person, not a very good team. <laughs> you, you, understand, you understand why they are in a relegation fight. But um, another thing that always pops out to me when I visit a, a big European soccer country like Italy right now is... They don't care here what's happening in the other big European soccer countries. Mm. Like, there is zero interest here in what's happening in the Bundesliga or the Premier League. Like, nobody's talking about it. It is all about Italy. And I kind of admire it, to be honest. I mean, like, they they are all about their domestic league. And maybe that has something to do with there aren't that many Italians in other big European leagues. In fact, probably the best Italians are in the French league if they're not in Italy, you know, like Verratti and I guess Donnarumma, right, at PSG. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's it's just fascinating to me how insular the top European soccer countries are. And it's very different from the U.S. We're like, we're an American podcast. We're talking about these different European leagues. I doubt there are many Italian podcasts talking about the English Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an oddity, but like you you experience it with England as well. Like you know, when you listen to all the you know the the shows and talk sport in the six oh six, like they're not they're not talking about what's going on in other leagues. Like they they have enough oxygen with what they have in their own league to uh, kind of occupy them entirely. So uh, yeah, I mean, in in a country, there's kind of like a fleeting interest, but uh, the U.S has kind of a unique perspective in that we can kind of sample various kinds of interests and there's interest in every league if you just look at the tv deals that all of the major leagues have like they're all getting big money because there's an audience for it all there's expats there's people who are just fans of the game and you know maybe aren't completely sold on mls and so they watch european stuff and yeah i mean it's it's remarkable the the the, the variance that you have in soccer interest here as opposed to other countries in the world. It is really interesting. And this also ties into what sort of drives me nuts sometimes with 
English broadcasters when they do Champions League or the World Cup, and they clearly don't have much knowledge about anybody from outside of England, or they talk about a Diego Forlan as if like his entire career is defined by not working out at Manchester United when he went on to win multiple golden boots in La Liga after that and had a wonderful career. Like, and I even noticed this recently on like choices made for broadcasters for like, you know, the Africa cup of nations, for example. So the English language broadcaster for the world feed is always some British dude this makes absolutely no sense to me. Like, why doesn't CAF hire somebody who is African, for example, who can do those broadcasts? North African, Black African, whatever, you know? And like, and, and then we always get some old white dude, British guy for doing the Africa Cup of Nations. And, and you, you see the result of that. It's, it's just frustrating. I'm going on a mini rant again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to try and find people that have that native interest, right? That like just know all of the players from top to bottom, where they come from. Like, you know, I, I've, I've kind of now gotten to that place working in MLS for a couple of years where it's like, I know the stories for 600 players that are in the league at minimum, just from having covered so many teams in this league that like, if you just dropped in the most talented broadcaster into the league to try and figure it out in year one, it's going to take them a second. I actually think that like John champion at ESPN, like would probably not have had a ton of prior experience with working in MLS or, I mean, he's worked some in the American game and kind of would parachute in, but he's very clearly taken on board. Like, all right, I got to learn a lot of stuff about this league. And now you hear, a a knowledgeable broadcaster who obviously is one of the best in the world and so like that native knowledge of a league or a country or whatever is really important if if you're not informing yourself at a really high level no and this is where i come in and say that like if if i give the impression that i have something with like english british broadcasters I, i i don't john champion's awesome Ian Dark is awesome. Martin Tyler, uh, mm-hmm. Derek Ray is absolutely amazing, and I love listening to him broadcast a game. So it's it's it's. But there is a sense, I think, like like why wouldn't CAF for Africa Cup of Nations choose Chris Whittingham or some American broadcaster to mm-hmm. do those games? Because I think the American, the good American broadcaster would probably have a better sort of global understanding of the players in that tournament. So yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a, a lot of those production warehouses are based in the UK. And look, right. I mean, the you know, British broadcasters have a monopoly on you know what is perceived to be good, and that even includes sometimes in this country where a lot of people would prefer to listen to Brits call the game than Americans. And they assume that the second you hear an an American accent, that it's not as good. Now, a lot of British broadcasters also happen to be the best, but it's not because of their accent or because of their background. It's because of their qualities. I also think I've heard some British broadcasters that I don't rate particularly highly, that I don't think are very good. Some of whom call the Premier League for the world feed, right? Like, you would think these are the best of the very best. It's not always the case. Um, But... I mean, you look at you even look at like the Commonwealth World Cup qualifiers. That's mostly called by a group of British guys. Like you should be able to find guys that work here or work in South America that can work in English and and call those games. There's just a monopoly on what people perceive to be good, and that's usually British. Here's my question though: When you get into fancy lad mode and you get into your Britishisms, could you actually do that? Could you like push a button and 
and do fancy lad Chris and like, or could you even go so far as to do a British accent when you're broadcasting? Could you do that? I've never tried it for 90 minutes, but honestly, a lot of the uh, <laughs> Britishisms that I picked up are because of like just listening to Premier League commentary. Like I'm a bit of a sponge in that way. So I just kind of regurgitate it. So yeah, every once in a while I'll toss in like a, hey, finished it with a plum. And it's not like I would, I would have I, ever I, said that before I started listening to Premier League games. So yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just absorbing what they said. I, I, I probably could. I've never tried it before. You know, actually, you mentioned the plum again. I was going to call you out earlier for that as, as your fancy ladism of this episode. But we should have like a little sound effect where I, I, I can push a button and it'll go like fancy lad you know yeah, like wait, wait, i mean we have one for like levitard show so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna upload it here into my computer so that <laughs> you can go to it whenever you want to call me out so let's actually discuss something else here from leeds man united this weekend because um this game it was it was a fascinating game ends up being 4-2 Leeds scores two very quick goals to get back in it man united ends up getting the goals to win but there was a lot more going on in this game, too. Yeah. So, I mean, first off, it was the first meeting between Manchester United and Leeds in the Premier League since like 2003 in front of a full stadium. They did play last year, but, you know, when dur during COVID times when there's nobody in the ground. So this was always going to be an occasion because I actually think that Manchester United, they have incredible rivalry with Liverpool. They have, uh, you know, a cross-town rivalry with Manchester City, but there just seems to be a venom in this tie that there isn't in those other two. And so today at Ellen Road, uh, you know, at any time Manchester United scored and they would, you know, do a knee slide towards the corner flag, there's all kinds of objects being thrown onto the field. Anthony Alanga, who scored the final goal, actually got hit by one. Um, and, you know, certainly I, he appeared to be okay. But, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, man, like we're, we're throwing things. And there were songs today, I read a report in ESPN about how the Leeds fans were chanting about the Munich air disaster from 1958, which saw several Manchester United players die. Um, and then you had uh, some of the Manchester United fans singing about an incident where Leeds fans on their travels to Galatasaray were stabbed. And like, like that's the banter that they're throwing back and forth. And it just kind of fit with an overall picture that we seem to have a fan-related incident every week. We've talked on the podcast about some, some of that stuff that's gone on in France, which has been horrendous, which has had games called off and postponed. Um, in England, there was a fan that ran onto the field and I think punched a player for Leicester City uh, either last week or the week before. It's just one of those worrying things where... I felt like fan violence was mostly under control pre-pandemic. Yeah, there was the odd incident, but it just feels like we read something every week about something that's happening from the stands. And look, we, we're all coming out, or, or you know, not even coming out, as you correctly pointed out on Twitter this week, of this global trauma that we've gone through together, of this pandemic and how it's probably forever affected our ability to socialize. But that's not an excuse for some of the stuff that we've seen at Premier League grounds, at grounds across, you know, Europe, across the world um, that, that are fan-violent related. It just seems like there's just been this outburst of misbehavior, and I'm not sure where it's come from, but uh, the thing of throwing coins at players who have scored goals... I, I don't know what needs to happen to stop, but you don't want the, the imagery of riot gear at a stadium, but it kind of feels like we're getting to that point because otherwise there's not really a ton that can be done to stop this. Yeah, there's not much for me to add to that, except it's it's ridiculous and it shouldn't be happening. And, you know, like, it it I don't think it's a stretch to say that this might also be tied a little bit to just sort of the 
like air rage situations we're reading about on planes and and something cultural that's happening after the pandemic and lockdowns and and just sort of general behavior but then again i mean like we also saw this before the pandemic with european soccer and and so it's yeah it's 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 very frustrating it's continuing and you hope the authorities do something about it but typically they don't do enough so we shall see um yeah actually I, I, re I read in that Go same ahead. espn story that uh there were 900 police today which apparently is like a, a massive amount so like they they were staffing up but you know, some of these things still happen. A um, couple of the quick MLS things. One, a report from Tom Bogert, the man with the, the mustache. You should get Tom on the show soon. Uh, really good insider for MLSsoccer.com that Hector Herrera, Ache Ache, from the Mexican national team, subject of uh, a bid from Houston Dynamo, new owner there, a bit more money, trying to get more relevant in one of the United States biggest cities with a lot of Mexican population or Mexican American population in it. Um, and obviously a player who's been with Atletico Madrid has never been a star there, but has been a contributor there. He's been decent there and a big Mexican star. Yeah. And you know, to see him every week in MLS would be amazing. And all of a sudden, you know, MLS is kind of growing their cavalry of, you know, big Mexican stars. You look at Chicharito, even Chicago, he's not quite a star, but a promising young player in Jairo Torres, who they signed for a few million dollars from Atlas. And so, I mean, this would be huge, huge for Houston. When you consider, I mean, at times they have just lacked relevance completely in that market. They've not been a good team either. And, uh, you know, Ted Siegel, their new owner, came in with the promise of, all right, this is going to be a completely different profile. Houston should be a big market team, should be a big spending team, should be a team with relevance. As good of a stadium situation, and Don Garber even said this when they introduced a new owner, like, their stadium is like 10 minutes from downtown, downtown Houston. And so it's a nice stadium in a good area. And, you know, they just struggle for relevance in that city. And so getting a big Mexican star is huge. Winning games again is huge. And they've got to figure out a way to create an atmosphere. But, man, when, when I saw that Herrera to, to, to Houston, that's one where you go, all right, Houston's for real. Like, that's the move that that new owner comes in and makes. I mean, Orlando with new ownership has come in and spent pretty well. And they look like they're going to be a strong team again this year. But um, that that's a statement of intent. Uh, them and even you look at Chicago, what they did with Shakiri with Torres. They're going to fill all their young designated player spots and their under-22 spots. Like, they mean business, too. So, yeah, I mean, that's really impressive stuff from Houston if they can get that over the line. Well, we've talked about how Chicago and Houston are probably the most prominent sleeping giants in MLS. And they both have new ownership that has spent, what, like $400 million total mm -hmm. pretty much each to, to acquire those teams. So for me, that should mean major upgrades. We're seeing that with, uh, with Chicago, not totally yet with Houston. Interesting decisions on their coaching hires, by the way, Ezra Hendrickson and Paulo Nagamura, which are sort of going with this current trend of people who... Uh, played in MLS, who know MLS, when they certainly could have afforded to bring in a high-priced European or South American coach, and they haven't done that. And so I'm curious to see how that ends up playing out, because Paulo Nagamura, a little bit like Steve Chirundolo, the LAFC coach, 
coached at a lower level didn't win that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll see if they can start winning uh, with these teams. But I actually talked to somebody this weekend with some knowledge of uh, inner workings at Charlotte and you know the new MLS expansion team saying that their coach almost got fired for what he said about wow. Um, we're screwed, we're effed in mm-hmm. Spanish. Estamos jodidos. Um, yes, um, which is kind of one of the great quotes from a coach it really in MLS is. history. It's a little like the Anthony Hudson quote with Colorado a while back where he was like, they're a bottom team with bottom players. <laughs> begging to be fired. And, begging and to be fired. And that was a soon, soon to be fired coach, Anthony Hudson. <laughs> But, like, owners don't want to hear that, you know? And so, like, very interesting to see what might happen now. I didn't think there were there were any MLS coaches this year that were beginning the season, which starts next weekend, by the way, on the hot seat. Like, some years you have coaches who sort of barely hung on at the end of the previous season, so you know that if they get off to a bad start in the first five or six games, they could get fired. And there's really... Not anyone that totally fits that description this year, except maybe in Charlotte, now that he said that. We'll see how that uh, gets kicked off. Yeah, I mean, he's, he certainly is like laying low expectations, and they got beat by, by Inter-Miami on Saturday night in their final preseason game. And you just look at their, their squad and you go, this, this, like, I, I think Miguel Angel Ramirez had a point which was they have not been able to get big transfers over the line. They do have a DP striker that they have, but, you know, on the wings, they're probably going to, I mean, he wants to play a 4-3-3, but, I mean, they'd probably be well-suited to play out of a five at the back just because of their lack of wingers, but um, they have not gotten the the, the DP attackers over the line, and so um, they're going to have to kind of survive until the, uh, until the summer when they can probably get uh, one or two more big deals done to fill out that team, but... Um, I mean, we've seen expansion teams build like that before. You, you build a little bit at a time, but I think you know the size of the project that Ramirez just probably sold when you have David Tepper in charge playing in an NFL stadium um, that he probably would have expected a few more in, and it hasn't come. And, uh, and and he vocalized that probably to his detriment, like you said. Yeah, they've had a lot of time to put that team together, so that's wild to me. Last thing I want to get into, MLS kits have been released, and I think... It's kind of an upgrade overall when you look at what's there. There's some there's some good ones there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I think you, we were talking about this before the podcast. I, I've like kind of heard before that the the kit designs are basically you know ready to go a couple of years in advance. So like you set a schedule and this is what your shirts are going to be. And so I, there was kind of like. Um, when when kit releases started really becoming a really big thing on social media, there kind of became this trope of clean. Oh, look how clean that shirt looks, and it's and it's plain white with a little bit of black contrast, and it's Terrible. just it's clean. Terrible. Uh, and and so that led to a bunch of teams that had all white shirts and all black shirts, and that's it. And that has that was you know uh, you look at you watch an MLS game you go I don't know who these teams are based off the shirts that they're wearing whereas at the very least even if you disagree with for example NYCFC's away kit which is a very sharp blue and orange with a lightning bolt through the middle and it's you know it's been divisive um at the very least like when they take the field in that shirt you know that's NYCFC playing uh and I think yeah. you look at, you look across the league and that's the case for most teams, right? You know, based off the shirt that they're wearing, Inter Miami wearing pink, which finally the, the, the kit was revealed in full. Fantastic. I, and, and, and by the way, it's pink from head to toe. Jersey, shorts, socks. 
pink. You know, when you turn an Inter-Miami game, that Inter-Miami is playing. Uh, and, and that, for me, is just is like what you want out of these shirts. You know, Austin, you know, going basically green with both of their kits. They're leading into Verde. Uh, like, the, you know, like you, you can tell for the most part. When you look across the roster, we're looking at an Instagram post of all the kits. Like, you know who's who. And that's like the first thing. Yeah. And there's also some uniqueness in design. Seattle has probably the most out there kits in the league. They look fantastic. Um, I love Portland Away. The Portland Away kit right. is tremendous leading into the Rose theme. Uh, yeah, th- there's some really good shirts out there. And the very least, you're seeing some unique designs, which have been long overdue in this league. Yeah, and a lot fewer just white kits. Mm-hmm. So I think that's good. I think there's still a few too many black kits, by mm-hmm. the way. But my my kind of... I don't know, gripe, if I have one this year, is mint. Too many mint kits, Witty. <laughs> and, like, I can kind of understand Austin because, look, if the choice is to wear something, like, white or a light color, like mint, I get it. Um, the Charlotte one, okay, but, like, Colorado Rapids are wearing mint, and I know they're not using the term mint, but Atlanta's wearing something very similar to mint. And that's just a little too much. And and like I, I kind of feel like if you're a single entity league, at least have some communication within the league about like how many people are doing a mint kit? Oh. <laughs> There's too many. Let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, maybe mint is the new clean, <laughs> and, and 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 fans love the mint kit. I will say they look good. I mean, I I, I love I love Austin's away shirt. Like I get it, but yeah, I mean, maybe maybe have some communication. Um, I just counted by the way. I think there's nine teams that will wear black this year. So um, certainly like yeah. that that's that, that that's probably a few too many. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, overall, again, like I said, like that look is really good. My favorite, though, is the replacement of Atlanta's kit that was white with gold numbers on the back. May those be put in a fire, put in a pile and lit on fire because you could not see the numbers on the back of the shirt. It was the bane of my existence for two years. I'm glad they're gone. And the, the, if, if Atlanta has to wear mint so that those kids never see the light of day ever again, I'm completely fine with it. If anyone makes a shirt where you can't tell what the numbers are, start over. R- rip it up, light it on fire, and start over again. You sound very passionate about this, and I understand. <laughs> broadcasters, broadcasters rejoice. No more Atlanta gold numbers. Yes, gold numbers <laughs> on white shirts. You want to put a gold number on a black shirt, fair enough. Gold numbers on white shirts. I mean, my God, it was awful. I hated those shirts. On that note, we will end things here. Thanks, as always, Wedding. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Claudio Reyna. You should know that this interview took place before his son, Gio Reyna's injury on Sunday. Our guest now is Claudio Reyna. He's the sporting director for Austin FC, a former World Cup star for the U.S. men's national team and had a standout club career, including time at Rangers, Man City, Wolfsburg, Leverkusen, and the New York Red Bulls. Claudio, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Grant. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to catch up. And there's a lot of things to talk about, including Austin FC in just a bit here. But to start with, I want you to put on your hat as a former U.S. men's national team captain. 
How do you feel about where the U.S. is right now in World Cup qualifying and the performances of the team? Yeah, um, I think uh, having been through qualifying and knowing the challenges that that exist, and I don't particularly mean going to, um, you know, the away games in Central America and in the Caribbean, but uh, just the, the the lack of time that you have together and and, and really putting a team on the field quickly, trying to get them synced up. It's, it's, uh, it's challenging, you know, right up until, you know, every game, there's some guys who, you know, uh, pick up something or not a hundred percent and the decisions to, you know, put the, the, the best um, 11 for each game is, is tough. And you have now the three game windows, which is different to the, what we experience. So um, certainly, um, in a good place, not, not a great place because we, we'd all wish we were, um, you know, in Canada's position, I guess, or having picked up, uh, I think a few more points on the road would have been good. Um, you know, the, the, the team is, uh, certainly, you know, you see the, 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 the quality, the, the potential it's massive. I think, uh, you know, it's the most talented team that we've had, um, in a, in a long time, of course, there's some youth uh, mixed into the group, which you can't accelerate experience. You, you you need to have it. You need to go through it, and they're learning absolutely on the fly. But there are games that you know we we need to pick up points and win. And you know we have a, a certainly challenging last three games, but there's no doubt that the group, um, despite its age, is is capable of getting results. Uh, you know against Mexico. Um, against Panama and Costa Rica. So they have to believe in just this, you know, I don't really, I'm not into <laughs> what our style of play is or, or uh, how we're going to, you know, do on set pieces or what our pro we, do we just have to, you know, we, we seem to do best when we just need to keep it simple and win as a group and be collective. And, uh, and that's, that's the most important right now, regardless of who plays, I think, uh, there's there's enough quality in the team to to get a result in in all the games and and get us to our ultimate goal in Qatar. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's exciting to see. I think you know it's we're we're here and sort of uh, you know these these situations that you know big countries go through and you know we're going through it as well. There's big countries in Europe that that uh, have big games to get to the World Cup and and um you know this was never easy though going back to what i originally was talking about the qualifying is challenging um you know and so we're 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 almost there but of course there's a lot of work to get us over the line you know i was looking at who the u.s has played under greg burhalter and due to covid in particular but also sort of the way the international calendar is set up with competitions under Burhalter, the u.s really hasn't had a chance to play any global heavyweight teams even in friendlies how different of a challenge will that be when this u.s team starts to play some of the big name teams in the world and and what are you curious to see well you know it's gonna see uh, we're gonna see how we match up against uh you know the, the top teams in the world and you know whether that's south america europe there's uh there's just a different you know, overall tactical and athleticism in these teams and um, experience. And a lot of these groups of teams have been together. And as I mentioned before, they're all going through qualifying. They actually have been together more than we have as, as a national team, uh, given, 
you know, the Comabol and the European Nations League and just them being able to travel and get more games. And so, you know, we certainly need to improve, I think, and and step up to it. But I think the the positive is for sure is that we have so many players that are playing at, at really high levels in Europe that I think there's, uh, you know, less of a fear to, to play against these teams. And maybe that that youthfulness um, will help and, and not be overawed by some of the teams that will play. But you need to face them. I think uh, they just they provide and give you different looks and 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 um, and get a certainly uncomfortable in certain areas, whether it's transitional game. Um, they're much more punishing, really. The better teams will punish you. They will give you fewer chances, so you have to take them. You have to finish them. And on the other side of it, you know, as I said before, if you make a mistake, the, these top nations kill you. And so, you know, it's it's we certainly need it. We we need to get those games. And I I know I'm sure the national team would love to play them, but given the 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 calendar challenges that we have and scheduling games, it's it's easier said than done. But you know, hopefully, you know, over the summer, you know, after getting these these games taken care of, that we'll be able to play some of those teams because we need to we need to for sure we we have to see other opponents i don't know how many of our listeners are aware of how far back you go with greg burhalter could you explain your history with greg yeah so um well we went to high school together um we played on saint benedict's prep and we played club soccer before that in new jersey um for a team called union county which sadly doesn't exist anymore uh of the old, uh, well, it still exists, but it was a cosmopolitan league that we grew up playing, playing in. That was, um, you know, incredible. It was certainly very diverse, um, different ethnic backgrounds, and uh, that's when we together, you know, were falling in love with the with the game. And uh, you know, we we shared a, a similar time in Europe as well, and we would always see each other, and you know. Um, you know, Greg was always someone who, who, um, as he got older, certainly you could see him becoming, a, a coach on the field and, and someone that, uh, shared his views and opinion and, and, um, you know, and I think that the experience being in Europe for him is what shaped him in, in eventually becoming a coach. So, you know, we are, uh, good friends. We've known each other for a long time. And of course we played on the national team together. So shared a lot of experiences on the field, off the field. And, uh, you know, he's working so hard to manage, as I said before, challenging situations from window to window and, you know, finding the right balance of guys between the players in Europe and the players in MLS and, um, you know, bringing them all together from, you know, each, each game. And, you know, so he's, uh, you know, I think, uh, of course, wants nothing more than success for this, for this national team just as much as anyone given his history with the national team and, and um, you know, him having been part of also a lot of these new players bringing into the national team, you know, which he takes great pride in their development. Is there any insight, maybe special insight into Greg that you might be able to share? Because all of our listeners are basically fans of the U.S. men's national team and they follow this really closely. But is there anything about how Greg approaches things or how you're viewing how he's doing this that you think would be good to share? Well, I think more of just the belief he has in the players, you know, he's, uh, you know, at the times we've talked about, you know, the quality of the players, um, you know, the depth of the pool, you know, he, he really is a, you know, uh, a fan of these players and believing that they are able to compete against anybody. And so, 
you know, he wants to build up their confidence, um, you know, and, and more than anything, just set them up for, for success on the field. And so there's uh, a lot of work he puts into it. Um, you know, he's from his experiences as a player wants to make sure they understand also the collectiveness of, of playing for the team, which is so important. Um, you know, but just how much he's, uh, excited and, and proud to be able to see the growth of this game and how these players, you know, are playing at such high levels, both domestically and internationally, um, you know, making his decisions to pick a squad, never mind a starting 11, really difficult. And so that's something that didn't exist when we were coming through. It was a, a smaller pool of, of, uh, of the sort of top tier players. And so, you know, he's just tremendously, you know, uh, aside from just being the coach, you know, putting that aside just to see what what's happening in our country and him being able to be the coach of this group of players and the stadiums and the support that we have as a national team has grown from from our time to today. But more than anything, just the, the players, you know, he, he really wants more than anything to the, the players to reach the maximum potential, their goals. And uh, and to really, you know, show the world that, you know, this is a new United States national team. I think that's one of his his goals. Um, his vision is is to continue and to earn that respect from teams and, and um, you know, fans around the world about this national team. So I'm going to ask you to put on your hat as Gio Reyna's dad for a moment. It's great to see Gio playing again after his five-month layoff. How is he doing right now? He's doing really good. You know, he's uh, was tough. The um, injury that he had was really difficult. It was tricky. Um, it was a, a high hamstring that uh, where there was uh, fluid that kind of impacted his nerve down his leg. So it was. It was. It took a few different specialists to, to figure out what he had, and um, but he feels great now. He's really happy. He's. Uh, He's a kid and he just wants to play and he, now he's able to be back on the field and playing and um, looking forward to this year, both club and country. Um, he unfortunately had, had food poisoning in the last game uh, in, in Berlin and in the middle of the night was texting us and uh, he was throwing up. And so that was unfortunate, but um, he's feeling good already and uh, be back in training. So, you know, just he's going through these early stages, you know, where he's breaking through as a professional and learning so much, so much pressure that he has to deal with and he's handling it so incredible. Um, so I kind of just sit back and, and give him advice, support him, um, you know, always, always giving him confidence, but he's, he really believes in himself and uh, you know, he, he wants to achieve on the club side, everything, possible. He's at an amazing club. He's got with Marco Rosa and a really fantastic coach who's really trust him and believes in him as a club. Obviously their history with young players is goes without saying. And so he feels good. He feels strong. He was able to during the time off sort of regroup and, and get in some good physical work for his body and strengthen um, his, his, his legs, his core, his upper body, which, uh, he really couldn't do because at 17 he was thrown in there and he was playing week to week and he had to recover and play. And he was being asked, uh, you know, at such a young age to play for a big club and big games. And, you know, there was a lot of recovery and play recovery and play. And so it was also, uh, um, despite being out for, for, you know, how long he was, he was able to really, um, you know, 
sort of reset his body and get some good work in. So he's really excited and um, has so much to look forward to, not only this year, but of course, for a, a long career. So Gio plays for Dortmund, obviously, and Dortmund drew your old team, Rangers, in this Europa League round. What's that going to be like for you personally? Well, of course, first and foremost, family. And so I'll be rooting for, for, for Gio and Borussia Dortmund um, in this tie, but it absolutely is special. Um, my close relationship with Giovanni von Bronkhorst, who's the head coach of Rangers now, is special. We're very, very close family friends. And so, um, you know, both amazing clubs. And I, I just hope by then both stadiums are at full capacity because the atmosphere of both the Signal Iduna at Ibrox are, are special, um, as good as any in Europe. So I can only imagine if the fans get both sides of it and the players, most importantly, it'll be something you'll never forget. Um, when I was at Rangers, we played against Borussia Dortmund in the, in the UEFA cup and we were eliminated on penalty kicks. And, you know, it's, I told Gio, you know, Ibrox, a full Ibrox is going to be special and you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to love it. He was there when he was younger. We went to a, a old firm game uh, about four or five years ago. Um, but it's awesome. It's great. Um, two amazing clubs with incredible fan bases and, you know, um, can't wait for it. Really. It's, it's really, really special. And one of these little cool stories for us really as a family that, you know, Gio at Dortmund gets to play against one of my former clubs and, you know, he played against Man City in the Champions League. Uh, he subbed on twice in that. And so now to play against Rangers is uh, is really special. Uh, I went to cover you at Rangers back in 1999 when you were the first American to play in the old firm. And one of the wilder trips I've ever had in my career just to see that firsthand. I mean, I covered Boca River once. This is about the only thing I would compare to it, at least in my experience at club level, uh, that rivalry. Um, but I remember going to like the Rangers bar and there was like a, a portrait of you up on the wall that was like painted and there were like a bunch of the other players from over time as well. Is that still up there? Like when you've gone back there, like what kind of response do you get? Um, I don't know if it's still up there. I've only been back twice since. And uh, I think, yeah, the fans are amazing at, at Rangers and Geo did uh my you know my Geo did an interview with uh leading up to this game and uh Danielle was over there now is over there now and he got off the interview um with the press in Scotland and he said mom man the Rangers fans really loved dad huh and uh she said yeah they did they were you know they really supported dad big time so so he he you know we go back there when we went back there he realized the support that you know that I had but it is a it's an amazing club and, you know, they, they love players who give everything. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward there. You give everything for the Jersey, they'll give everything back. And so it's, uh, it's certainly a, a special place and it was a, a great part of our life and, uh, of my career for sure. Now I forget, is there any connection between you being so close to Giovanni von Bronckhorst and deciding to name Gio Gio Bonnie? <laughs> Yeah, so the story goes that like he's he's um, we love the name Giovanni and Gio for sure, and you know I think we when we went through the naming of Childs, you know, it was, we had some other options as well. But of course, you're like, wait, 
you know, there was a guy named that that, you know, my wife didn't like or I didn't like growing up or <laughs> someone I would interact with. But so then we landed on Geo. We loved the name Geo. And of course, on top of it, one of our closest friends and someone who's a is an awesome guy. Um, so, you know, we kind of did let him know, like, hey, we're going to name, you know, Geo, Geo, Giovanni. And so, you know, and, and um, yeah, so there's sort of a, a connection to him, our relationship. Uh, him being a close friend, um, you know, and Giovanni von Braun, of course, has known Gio since he was born. And so to see him grow up a couple of years ago, he went to right when COVID was uh, starting to make its way uh, in January, February of, of 2020. My wife and the entire von Braun course family went to visit Gio at a game at Dortmund. They drove from Rotterdam and just to support him and see him, um, you know, Gio's von Braun course's son, Jake was also named after our Jack, but they didn't want to take Jack. So there's a lot of connections. Um, you know, we are like family They visit each other. They'd come to, to New York and to the Hamptons to our house all the time. And, you know, after the 2000 and, uh, 2000 euros, uh, which he played in, there was a, a, a Dutch uh, bakery who was showing all the games back in the day, pay-per-view. And I walked in there and he didn't know who I was. He was straight from Amsterdam and watching every game. And we'd go in there and watch some of the games on pay-per-view. And I told him, oh, as soon as they get eliminated, he's coming here. And he didn't believe me. Like, how is a Dutch national team player coming to, to the Hamptons? And, and of course, you know, they lost in the semifinals to Italy in penalty kicks. And he was over and I uh, took him in there and he, and he couldn't believe it. So that's how close we are. We, you know, we went, I went to his wedding. Um, we still find times to visit each other. And, um, you know, it's a chance I get over to the game on the 24th in Glasgow and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see him after the game, but uh, yeah, just, just really close friends. And we've, you know, we've been in touch as families and it's just great to see him now also coaching at a former club, one of our former clubs and, and uh, really enjoying it as well. It's awesome. Thanks for sharing the, that story. That's awesome. It also reminds me how difficult it used to be to watch the Euros. Yeah. You had to go like, find it on pay-per-view. <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, my God. And the house we were renting at the time didn't have the ability to rent it. And then we actually told the people we were renting from, like, can you like get whatever it was? I can't even tell you what it was. But then we were able to to rent some of the games. But, of course, it was like, whatever it costs, we're like, all right, we're going to the beach this day. We're going to rent that game, not that game. And, but yes, that's, that's how soccer used to be in this country. Pay-per-view for the Euros. Oh, shoot. So let's talk Austin FC. Got a few questions on Austin. There was a great response in Austin to the team last season from the fans. Tough times on the field for much of it. How do you look back at the way the first season played out? Yeah, it was a, it was special from from the launch of of, of soccer with Austin FC and uh, professional soccer at, at MLS was incredible. Um, the support, um, there's no doubt that this is a soccer community here, and you know we had the national team play here. The women's uh, national team opened the stadium, and um, the support we had as a club on and off the field was really special. It's unique for any soccer fan um, who hasn't been to Austin. It's a, it's a bucket list. You have to come to a game. You have to come to the city You see the flags, you see the jerseys. 
everywhere. You see the stickers on the car and, you know, the players certainly feel it. Um, we have a beautiful stadium. The Q2 stadium is as, as good as any in, in MLS. Our training facility um, is first class. We actually have Toronto and Chicago here, Chicago here now training here. Um, so from those aspects of just the, you know, soccer arriving, it did in Austin. There's no doubt about it. And our team, yeah, we had a, we had difficult time. We had, uh, you know, nine of our first 10, 10 games on the road. Um, you know, we suffered uh, four season-ending injuries within the first basically three, four games of the season. We had four guys out. And so we were constantly chasing and catching up. There was a lot of positives. I do feel, you know, um, teams knew that we were a tough team to play against. But, um, you know, we just lacked a little bit of depth through those injuries. And now we've, um, you know, uh, rebuilt the squad a little bit, added some strength in defense and holding midfield with Johan Valencia from Deportivo Cali. Um, and there's a good group here. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it was certainly at the same time, a lot of a, learnings, a learning experience in terms of, all this staff and all this player coming together for the first time in a new city um, with COVID where we couldn't really get together and do anything. It was very strange to, to, to kind of go through that and, and, and have to have to keep our distances, you know, at the training facility off the field. Um, and so now that's, that's pretty much behind us now and being able to really, you know, start fresh this year. And, you know, we feel really good about the group Um you know, we've made a few additions, but we really believe in a lot of the guys we had here. And, um, you know, we, we had many players who didn't play many minutes the year before. So, you know, they're, they're further up to speed in terms of uh, just where they're at physically. Um, and like anything, a lot of new players that come to MLS, you know, it takes time to adapt. So, you know, we feel good. Um, we've had a good preseason, uh, mostly based here in Austin. We were going to go to Florida, but we had to cancel it to COVID. We play Atlas on Wednesday, which is a the Mexican champions, as you know. So that's going to be a really good test for us where we're going to get minutes for everyone in the squad. Um, but it's great. I mean, it's really special to be the only major professional sports team in the city. Um, you know, the amount of local support from media and our fans is amazing. So certainly the, the players are motivated uh, going into this season. And, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to it. We think, uh, you know, quietly down here that, um, you know, we're going to have a good year and, and um, we need a good start to the season. We're going to have a more balanced schedule with, you know, being able to play games, um, you know, throughout the year. And if we go on the road, obviously you come back and make up for any, any challenges that you have on the road. So um, just looking forward to it. You know, we have great owners um, and we have everything in place here really to, to build something special. So this is a, an exciting, exciting year ahead for us, for sure. You know, when you look ahead to the season, there are so many teams in this league now. <laughs> There's like 28 teams, which is just kind of a crazy number. Yeah. I think only Argentina maybe has had that many in their top flight. Um, what success in your mind for this team this season? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously everybody says to win a, win a trophy, but as you said, you know, they, they don't come around. You know, you can, you need so much, you need luck. Um, you know, you need so much to fall in place, but we certainly uh, want to make the playoffs uh, as a start. And that means you have a consistently good year. Um, we do want to play well. Uh, we're not going to, we're not going to shy away from that. We want to play good soccer. We want to entertain. Uh, we want to score goals. Um, you know, as a group, we want to come together and, 
and share in these successes as well. So if that's internally what we're talking about. And then, you know, the Western Conference is certainly challenging. Um, but, you know, get into the playoffs, make a run, make a run in Open Cup um, and really kind of take this next step and, and really whatever that is. But, you know, we internally, I think it's it's sometimes difficult to sort of, you know, loudly talk about, you know, winning a trophy and all that. But internally, we have a strong belief in the group. Um, you know, we want to make our home Q2 stadium really, really difficult, make sure we dominate teams and get, you know, many points here as home as much as possible. Um, but really entertaining, playing good soccer, continuing to con connect with the community. Um, but certainly winning is is very, very important. You know, we can't, we can't shy away from that um, as a group, as a culture, we have to almost be obsessed with it. And that's something we've talked about. You know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta really, really as a group together, come and, and, and do everything possible to win games, but we do want to play good soccer. And, and you could see uh, lots of glimpses of it last year when we played that we played an attractive brand, but at the same time, our issues were sometimes in transition. Uh, some of our buildup play, we gave, we gave away goals too easily. Um, you know, we often gave up the first goal. So then with that, you know, when you lack confidence, you have to come back in games and we weren't able to do that as much. So, you know, making sure we learned from, from all that last year and, um, you know, really, really as a group playing collective, good soccer and, uh, you know, and, and from, like I said, you know, getting into the playoffs is sort of the, the, the minimum that we want to establish. Just to wrap up here. Um, probably the most prominent or one of the most prominent people associated with Austin FC is investor Matthew McConaughey, who's kind of Mr. Austin all over the city. What are your interactions like with him? Yeah, our minister of culture. He's very involved in uh, in the team. Um, he's been around, but he's also, as you could imagine, really busy. Um, and hopefully we'll get to see him. He had he had some kind of uh, we, we had some personal COVID situations that he was being careful and keeping his distance on top of being very, very busy, as you can imagine. But um, he absolutely is a big supporter, calls, texts, checks in uh, with me and the team and how we're doing. Um, he came here last year at the beginning of preseason and, and talked to the group, um, but very connected um, with the team very supportive of the players and everyone at the club. And, you know, it's, it means something to him, you know, he's, he's from central Texas and an Austinite and he's proud of everything that's happening here. And he was, uh, and continues to be a huge believer of the club and, and soccer in, in Austin. So he's great. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's a extremely intelligent and articulate. Um, you know, when I'm around, I, I certainly, seem to be listening more than talking and just want to take in everything he says. Um, but he's inspirational and motivational in, 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 in kind of what he, what he, um, you know, comes across saying. And, uh, you know, he's, like I said before, he's a hundred percent behind the club and it's, and it's awesome to have someone like him, you know, on, on our side and, and, and a big fan of the club. Claudio Reyna is the sporting director for Austin FC. Good luck in the new season. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. Hope to see you down in Austin. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Claudia Reyna, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.